You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Turn with me, if you're not there already, to Matthew chapter 10. Remain standing, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's word. Uh, it is it is a joy uh, to teach from all of uh, Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. The whole counsel of God is inspired by God and is profitable. Um, and and yet there is something unique about listening to the very words of Christ. Uh, if you've been following Jesus for some time, there is just nothing like His words that resonate so deeply. And he can say some really hard things, which he's about to say in this passage. And yet, we keep coming back for more. So let's listen to the very words of Christ now from Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Beloved, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, as we have read this, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we come to some of the most consequential words from Christ in all of the New Testament. We said last week that as much as Jesus is our savior and our friend, he is also a king. And when he sits on the throne of one's heart, all other allegiances will be tested. All allegiances, all of our loves, all of our affections, all of our friends, all of our family members, all other priorities and values along the path of Christian life and mission will be tested. In other words, no stone in the battle for your worship will remain unturned in the heart of a Christian. Jesus doesn't just sit on a shelf in our hearts. He's not content with a, a portion of our hearts. There's something about him, isn't there, that permeates, that 
pervades all of our lives. And so the question is, and we've heard this question many times, what if you lost everything in your life? Everything was taken from you like Job. And yet you still had Christ. Would he be enough for you? And everybody in church says, yes, absolutely, for sure. What if you were forsaken by those that you loved the most, your children that you raised? What if you were forsaken by your children and others, deep friendships that you loved most deeply? Would you still find that following Jesus is worth it? These questions may be easy to answer in church and may be easy to answer in the hypothetical Like Peter, you might be quick to say, everyone else will fall away, but I will never fall away. These questions may be easy to answer in theory, but there is coming a time in your life, if it hasn't happened already, when your love and your loyalty to Christ will be tested. I promise you. There will come crossroads at your life in that moment, that defining moment, and there'll be many of them where you go, I'm so tempted because I love this relationship or I love this thing. I'm tempted to to sort of skirt my priority, my value in Christ and not bend the knee here and go this way. It will come if it hasn't already. And when that season comes, I pray that we can say along with Job, With tears in our eyes, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm following Jesus at all costs. I'm following him. Well, in our text this morning, I see three movements. We'll spend the most of our time in the first one, but, but if you're a note taker, first I see a love that divides. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So there's love that divides, and then there's love that denies. That's our next movement. And then finally, a love that unites. A love that unites. First, Jesus talks about this love that divides. Now look at this shocking statement in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Let's stop there for just a moment. If you've, if you've, even if you only come to church on, on, on Christmas and Easter, you might be picking up on an apparent contradiction. What do you mean you didn't come to earth to bring peace? Isn't that what was announced in Luke chapter 2 when the angels appeared to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. But here in Matthew 10, Jesus emphatically says, do not think, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. So which is it? Is it the shepherds in Luke 2 that we are to believe, or is it Jesus in Matthew chapter 10? Who's right? Well, in fact, the answer is both are exactly right. And to sort out this paradox, an apparent contradiction, 
to sort out this paradox, we need to both understand the kind of peace that Jesus brings, the kind of peace that he brings, and we need to understand those to whom are the recipients of this peace. And let's, let's look at the latter first. Who are the recipients of the kind of peace that Jesus brings? Let me read the full text to you. It should be on the screen. This is Luke 2.14. Here's the announcement. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So then, listen, at the coming of Jesus Christ, peace is announced. The angels declare peace on earth. But this peace is only applied to those with whom the Lord is pleased. This is not a blanketed peace. This is not unconditional peace. This is particular peace. Those who reject Jesus will not have the peace of Christ. That is consequential. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ to herald good news without saying that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have the peace that he offers. This is particular peace. Only those who through faith receive him, they, he resonates, will have the peace that he brings. So that is those who receive the peace. Now also, we have to understand the kind of peace that he is offering. The kind of peace that Jesus brings is not the kind of peace we think we need. The expectation of Messiah, as you know, especially in the first century, was this expectation that peace would come through the overthrowing of the oppressors. Whether it was Rome or Babylon or Assyria or some oppressing force, peace would come. Messiah would bring peace through overthrowing whatever regime was in control and putting their, their thumb on God's people, his chosen people. That's how peace would come. That was the expectation of Messiah. But of course, that is not the kind of peace that Jesus offered his people. And this is what is terribly frustrating when you follow Jesus around. And he, he, he can have a swelling crowd eating, literally eating out of his hands as he's dividing loaves and fish. They're eating out of his hands. And even his disciples are looking around like, this is our moment. This is our campaign moment. Now's the time for the stump speech. Now's the time to run for office. Now's the time to come and overthrow Rome. And he, at every opportunity to gain the kind of power that his disciples think that he needs in order to give them the peace they thought they needed, Jesus eludes it. He, he doesn't want anything to do with that kind of peace. Instead, Jesus came preaching a message of forgiveness of sins and peace with God. And in so doing, Jesus identified the human heart as our greatest enemy and enmity with God, our greatest problem. 
And so not any sort of external oppression is our greatest issue. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Therefore, when Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the world, Jesus here is not denying his central ministry to bring sinners into relationship with God, to restore peace with God. He is not saying that. Instead, Jesus is saying, listen, that the kind of peace that he brings will actually become the cause of many conflicts in your life. Because he has come to restore fellowship with God, that kind of peace is going to create all kinds of conflicts in your life. Before we go any further, who talks like that? What revolutionary talks like that? Not one. Jesus is in a category all on his own. He tells you like it is. He doesn't sugarcoat it. It's not a slogan. It's not a bumper sticker. The kind of peace that Jesus offers will cause conflict in your life. In fact, he says at the end of verse 34, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And here Jesus uses the metaphor of a sword not as an illustration for death, but instead as an illustration for division. He's not using sword in the, in the war sense, in, in the sort of illustration for death. He's using it as an illustration for division. We know this because of what he says in verse 35 and following. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now Jesus is not on a crusade against family unity He doesn't take delight in families being torn apart because of the gospel. After all, Jesus is the one who designed the very structure of the family unit. Instead, Jesus is saying, listen, when I come into someone's life as king, as savior and king, through faith, there is a paradigm of priority that begins to form. This is really important, particularly if you're brand new to the faith, that you understand that when you decide, I'm going to follow Jesus, there is a new paradigm of priority that begins to take shape in your life. And this priority centers on the most important reality we know of outside of God himself, and that is love. Love for God begins to take priority over love for everything else. Look at verse 37. He makes this explicitly clear in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Notice he is not saying you can't love your father or your mother, but it is a matter of degree. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There is a priority of love that begins to form when God himself enters your life. 
And before, again, we go any further, just recognize with me the radical nature of that statement. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. What would you say to anyone other than Christ who said that to you? You'd call, you'd call them crazy. Like imagine you're sitting across from somebody on a date and they look at you in the eye and they say, unless you, if you love your father and your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Right? That's the definition of creepy. Like you get up out of that space and you leave before the food even comes. You're done. That date is over. Likewise, if some politician comes, some king, somebody on some platform that says, unless you love me more than your own children, you're not worthy of me. You, you, you just, you write them off as a, as a lunatic, as someone utterly crazy, but somehow it works with Jesus. Why? Why does it work? When Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. It works with Jesus because Jesus is the God of the Shema. That was our call to worship this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad. He is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It works because Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. So there is a new priority of love. Listen, in order for the solar system of our lives to function correctly, love for God must be the burning sun in the center of our solar system. And then everything else, all the other loves orbit around that central love for God. Love for God must be at the center and any other good thing in our lives, again, orbits around God. And as these other things orbit around God, it's then that they get their warmth and their meaning and their health. In other words, the absolute best thing that we can do for the people that we love in our lives is to love them less than we love the Lord. The best thing that we can do for people that we love in our lives is to love them less than we love the Lord. And now Jesus goes on to say that this priority of love sounds great, sounds wonderful. This sort of burning sun in the center of the solar system, I get it, I make sense. Planets order, orbit around the sun, that makes sense. Well, Jesus now begins to say, this priority of love is actually gonna cost something too. That there is a cost to discipleship. There's pain involved because there will be someone in your life that is used to being on the top. And now that Jesus is there, your priorities are changing. Your appetite is changing. Your direction in life is changing. There's a new king that's sitting upon the throne of your heart. In my experience, this is especially difficult when they are people that you love and they are close to you and they claim to be Christians. 
it's hard enough if your family member, your mother, your father, your sons or daughters are not Christians and they just, they shun you because they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They're tired of getting invited to Easter service or whatever. They, they can shun you. And obviously in, in, in American culture, that's maybe as bad as it gets. In other cultures, it, your life is on the line. I understand that. But it's, it's one thing when this person is, just doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. It's another thing when they claim to be a believer and you come to that crossroads with them and the loyalty with them is tested. In my experience, this is the hardest. In this moment, when it comes, you'll have to prioritize your loyalties and sometimes it will come at the highest relational cost imaginable. And it feels like you're getting pulled in two. And so this is a love that divides. Priorities have changed. Loves are being reordered. Jesus the King is coming in and he's beginning to move throughout all of our lives. This is a love that divides well, this love for Christ not only divides, this is point two, <coughs> excuse me, it also causes us to deny ourselves. Look at verses 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now these two statements from, from Jesus in verses 38 and 39 are the most repeated statements of Christ in all of the gospels. To take up your cross and follow Jesus. To deny yourself. To lose your life in order to find it. These are the most repeat, repeated phrases from Christ in all of uh, the New Testament. Which just means that this, this teaching from Christ must have just saturated his teaching over and over and over. Again, if you want to find your life, you'll lose it. You want to find your life, you'll lose it. What on earth does that mean? It's intriguing. Well, to take up one's cross and follow Jesus could apply to so many different areas of life. The, the cross is the cost. It's the pain. But here it applies to the relational cost to following Jesus. Have you felt that? Have you felt relational cost, relational pain, the sword coming in and dividing you from someone you never thought you'd be divided from? The cross is again the relational pain that sometimes comes when we pledge ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ as Savior and King. And as Bruner puts it, he says this quote, the only thing that makes that kind of pain worth it is the one whom we are following. In other words, yes, we are to take up our crosses. We are to absorb the pain of our allegiance to Jesus but it is Jesus who goes before us in the journey. Taking up your cross is not worth it unless you are following Jesus. And that's why that has to go together. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me. 
Follow me. I'm the one that makes the cross worth it. I'm the one that makes the relational pain worth it. Every sacrifice on the path of obedience to him is absolutely worth it. It is him who we are following. Well, the same is true in the next phrase. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Losing our lives, I take that to mean, I take that to mean walking away from paths of worldly comforts to find security, to, to use a biblical word, to have faith in something other than God in Christ. To have faith in a padded bank account, to rest, to rest the weight of your life on that. Or on a wholesome family or on whatever it is for you, vacations or whatever, all of those things can be good. But I think what Jesus is saying here, when you rest on it, when that begins to hold you up and give you dignity, that is what we are to deny. And if we deny that, if we lose that, we find actual life. We find something that is sturdy enough to lean not just our 80 plus years upon, but our eternity upon. That's what I take Jesus to mean here. Don't, don't rest in something that can only maybe comfort you for a small lifetime, but lean the whole weight upon, of your soul upon the one that can not only sustain your life now, but for eternity. You've you got to be convinced that that eternity piece is true. Otherwise, it's just not worth it. The pain is too real to follow Jesus. Walking away from paths of worldly comfort only makes sense if it is for Christ's sake. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I love that lyric from uh, the song that we sing and hear that hymn, Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call. One of my favorite hymns. It says this, quote, should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God be then my treasure. What does a Christian prayer sound like what does a Christian prayer sound like when these radical words from Jesus are burning at the center of one's heart? Have you ever prayed that God would help you lose your life so you can find it? That is a glorious prayer. It is a dangerous one because he answers them. And we think, oh Lord, I pray that you would answer that prayer with this relationship. <laughs> I pray that you would tear me apart from this relationship. That your sword would divide this person from my life. That's very, very rarely how God works. And that's usually the person he wants you to be close to and witness to and be all sorts of awkward around and uncomfortable What would, it like, what it would it look like in our church in 10 years if we all prayed that? And meant it. 
Lord, I want to take up my cross and I want to follow you wherever that is. Well, there's a love that divides and it's also a love that denies. It comes in and it causes us to deny ourselves and follow Christ. Finally, this is a love that unites. This is a love that unites. Look at verses 40 and 42. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, up to this point, Jesus has been drawing attention to all of the things that we will lose if we follow him. And if you've been paying attention, the cost is great. The potential for loss is great. The potential for loss, by the way, is is total. We could totally lose everything. Losing relationships like mother, father, son, daughter. He then calls us to absorb the cost, the cross, the pain of these losses and follow him while we seek to live our lives for his sake. Loss. Remember Paul? He had everything. He was was a scholar. He was respected. He was tough. And then Christ started messing with his life. And then he considered everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. How did he get there? That's the question. How did he get there to absorb the loss and then say all of that, I'm actually, I call it rubbish now compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. How did he get there? I wanna get there. In these verses, Jesus draws our attention not to what we lose, but in fact to what we gain in following him. He says, whoever receives you receives me. Jesus is so united to his followers, so united to his fathers, that when others receive his disciples, they receive him. Back to Paul the Apostle. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul is on, his, on the road to Damascus. He's Saul of Tarsus. He is going to go and imprison some Christians. And who shows up? The risen Christ. Knocks him off of his horse, quite literally, and begins to minister to Paul, or who is Saul at the time. And what does Jesus say? Do you remember what Jesus said? Paul's on his way to persecute Christians. And Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. Me. Jesus is so united to his followers that any persecution of his church, he takes personally. If they receive you, they receive me. What do we get in the gospel? 
We can lose all kinds of things. Some of you are experiencing that right now, loss for, for following Christ. What do we get? We get a love that unites us to God in Christ forever. And for some of you, that just feels like I just handed you a plastic toy. I don't need the love of God in Christ. I need this thing fixed. You keep giving me plastic. Mm. The greatest gift of the gospel and the only reality that makes Christian mission possible is our union with Christ. Full stop. He is either enough for us or he isn't at all. It is always an all or nothing proposition with Jesus Christ. Take up your cross and follow me wholehearted to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, everything. Whoever receives you, receives me. What a statement. We get God. And that's the, that's the question, is that enough? For billions, it's not. Well, how do we find fuel? How do we, how do we walk this road that is full of loss? Finding fuel and sustenance along the path of Christian mission. And I'm, this is not in the Bible. I mean, I hope this is true. I hope this is biblical. But this is from, just from my own life in ministry. Take it or leave it. I have found that finding fuel and sustenance, endurance, along the path of obedience to Christ in Christian mission does not come by looking at my own faithfulness. Does that mean there are moments or aren't moments in my life where I wasn't faithful? No, there are moments where I praise God that he grant me faithfulness in that moment, but it's just not enough. It's not enough. The, the daily failures are enough to just wipe me out. What will give us decisive power to walk circumspectly, to prioritize Jesus above all things, to give us courage to walk away from things that are not from Christ and to walk the path, the narrow and hard path, is to marvel at Jesus' sacrifice for us, not our sacrifices for him. Because his sacrifice is a sacrifice that unites us forever with God. And it just never grows old. It never grows old. There are Sundays when I feel it less or there are devotions where I feel it less or more, but I keep coming back to that pure food, that pure gospel, the faithfulness of God in Christ to grant me eternal life. And we keep pulling from that substance to gain endurance in Christian mission. He was abandoned by those who said they never would he was despised and rejected for all, or by all, for love's sake, to bring about a peace that nobody thought they needed. <laughs> he just, imagine that. 
over and over again, offering peace with God, and people are like glazing over. And yet he kept walking. We look to his obedience to fuel ours. Finally, let me just say this. We will never regret the decision we make, the decisions we make in this life to prioritize Jesus above everything else. The best thing that we can do for the others that we love is to love them less than we love the Lord. It feels counterintuitive. But if you place somebody else as the burning sun of that solar system, you will crush them. They don't have enough gravity to hold the solar system together. They don't have enough burning heat to give light to everything else. We will, even with good intentions, keep snuffing them out. If you put people in church in that center, you put this church in that center, you put your wife or your husband, you put anybody else in that center, you will snuff them out. Jesus Christ is the only one who has the gravitational gravitas, the pull to keep the solar system functioning. And so to love others well is to love them less than we love the Lord. And we will never regret the decisions to prioritize Jesus in that way. This is the narrow road. It is not easy. It comes at great cost. But may Christ and his glorious gospel be the burning sun in our solar system. And may we find over and over again that he is worth it. He's worth it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for the words of your son preserved for 2,000 years that are just as consequential as they were when Christ, you first uttered them. Lord, I pray that you would orientate our hearts now, rightly. I pray those who who come in here that have, have just heard plastic They've just heard Jesus and it just is not, it's just bouncing off. I, I pray in, in, your, in your grace, in, in your kindness and in your mercy, would you grant a resonance? Would you grant a, an appeal? That, that they would not feel that they're, they're handling something inauthentic, but they, they'd feel that at this moment they're holding, they're, they're holding in their hands a bread of, bread of life. And so, Lord, we pray for for this and we pray for all of us, Lord, as you are moving into other parts of our lives and having your way, I pray that we delight in it. In Jesus' good name, amen.